The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I was reading a book this week, and I came to a paragraph that stopped me in my tracks. The author was an overseas missionary. He was laboring in a very hostile area, hostile to Christians, and he was forced to come back to the States. And what he found was stunning. He was surprised to see what a change has happened in this country, how Christians have lost so much cultural capital, how so much hostility is being spoken against Christians. In seeing this surge of hostility towards Christians, scorn, maligning, he wrote a book. The book is entitled Evangelism as Exiles, because that's what we are. In our setting here in America, we must recognize we are exiles living in the midst of a hostile society, hostile to the gospel, hating Jesus. So then he said, what is it about sharing the gospel in America that's missing, that's different than what is happening in other hostile societies as missionaries share the gospel? Here's the paragraph that just stopped me in my tracks. Quote, we have believed that the most effective witness for Christ has to be positive and encouraging. We've assumed that the way to win the masses is by rebranding our churches and offering people a better life, your best life now. We believe that our greatest apologists are successful CEOs or professional athletes. The gospel has become one-dimensional, only about receiving blessing without the need to avoid judgment. So here's my translation. We have shared the gospel trying to do the Lord's work in the world's way with marketing, by trying to make the message fit more with what we want it to say, how we want it to come off. This is market evangelism. The power of the gospel is in the success. It's in the positivity. Give them what they want to hear. Stress that part and hide the judgment part. So what is it that's missing in modern evangelism, especially if we are to be evangelists who are exiles? Well, Peter this week puts his finger right on it. So I want to read the text, I want to see it together, then we'll pray. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So here's what Peter does. In this passage, the first thing that he does is he paints the backdrop of suffering and the certainty of blessing. It's the first thing he does at the beginning and the end like bookmarks. Verse 13, verse 17. We have the backdrop of suffering and yet the certainty of blessing. So that's the bookends. And then in the middle, like a good pastor, he helps them know how do you respond to this suffering, especially in light of the certainty of blessing. So those are our two points in our outline. First, the backdrop of suffering and the certainty of blessing, verses 13 and 17. And then the main point found in the middle, here's how you respond to suffering. So let's, let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, I pray for a grace now to be still and to know that you are God. You will be exalted among the peoples. You will be glorified among the nations. Lord of hosts, you are our refuge and strength. So I pray in this moment that our hearts would honor Christ as holy and that we would not fear what can man do to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to look with you at verse 13 first. What I want you to see in these two verses is you see three things repeated. You see first the necessity of doing good. You see that in both verses. We'll see that in a minute. The necessity of doing good. Then you see second, the possibility of suffering. We'll see that in both verses. And then thirdly, you see the certainty of blessing. So in these two verses, this is what you see. You see the necessity of doing good, the possibility of suffering, and the certainty of blessing. So look at the necessity of doing good. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Not even enough that he says it once, says it again, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, in other words, zealous for what is good, and even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. But it's not enough for him to say it twice. He says it again in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Isn't it amazing? To anybody else, when you read 1 Peter, how many times he makes it explicit and emphatic 
that Christians are sold out for doing good. That this is our life, that we're spreading beautiful behavior before a watching world to show the excellency of Christ. Why does he have to say it all the time? Doesn't it ever become implicit? It's like he never gets tired of making it explicit, making it emphatic, repeating himself. Why? It is the necessity of the new birth. Why is there the necessity of doing good? It's because we have been born again in the likeness of our God who is holy, who is righteous, and therefore Christians who are now born again, made anew in His image, after His likeness, with His Spirit, we are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Peter says it's who you are. It is to be the dominant characteristic, the front-facing thing that people see is that you are sold out for good, that your obedience is not up for grabs, it's not up to the wind of the political moment, it is in Christ you are born again, and therefore you will hunger and thirst to do good. Even, secondly, with the possibility of suffering. Look at verse 13. He makes an assumption in the form of a rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So once again, you're not lukewarm for good. You're zealous for it. You're hungering and thirsting for this. And he asks the question, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now, some people take this in the Matthew chapter 10 sense, where Jesus says, not a hair on your head can be harmed, even if they kill you. You're supposed to fear him who can kill the body and the soul in hell. Don't fear the one who can just kill the body and after that do nothing. Not even a hair on your head will be harmed, meaning they can't touch your soul. But I don't think that's what he has in mind here in particular because he's just said, remember, in chapter 2 that government exists for this very reason. Reward the good, punish the bad. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. Governors sent by him, that is the emperor, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the normal function of government. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Christians are to be known as those who do good and therefore should come under the normal purpose of government to praise those who do good, punish those who do evil. You could say the same thing, that there's a normative sense to this. Say if you're at work or say, for example, you're a parent, what boss is ever going to get down on you for showing up to work on time all the time? What boss is going to say, would you quit doing your job so effectively and efficiently? What parent is ever going to say to their child, would you mouth off more, please? Would you please disobey, break the rules a little bit more? You're being too good. 
That's normal. We shouldn't expect that by doing good, you receive evil or punishment in return. But Peter's whole point is that they're living in such a highly, highly charged society in which their doing good will often bring harm, will often bring maligning. That's why he says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter uses a form of the verb here that stresses the possibility of suffering, meaning it's always a possibility for believers to suffer, even if for some it's not a present reality. That is, whenever you suffer, you should not be surprised. You should not say, I didn't even think this was a possibility. It's always there in the background. Suffering is not yet an empire-wide experience, but the volcano, even though it hasn't erupted yet on the whole Roman Empire for Christians, it's smoking, and it could erupt at any moment for any Christian. You're supposed to feel how highly charged the hostility is. Always be ready for suffering. Don't conclude that something strange or random is happening to you, that somehow you're outside of God's will. Don't forget, Peter is telling his readers, some of you have been targeted. They've received accusations, chapter 2, verse 12. Ignorant talk, chapter 2, verse 15. Evil and reviling, chapter 3, verse 9. Threats and malicious talk, chapter 3, verse 14, and verse 16. And do I have to say that many of us here are more in this situation? I doubt that many people here are being physically harmed for your faith in Jesus here in America. That is true outside of America for many Christians in many places. And yet in America at this point, like First Peter, most of what we experience is verbal. Most of what we experience is towards us. We feel this hostility. You feel this antagonism. And it can sometimes erupt in the way that people talk to us, in the way that people treat us, even if it's not yet physically felt, physically harmed. The world will do what First Peter is saying. It will resort to all kinds of shaming strategies to try to get you to conform to everyone else. If you're not operating according to the patterns of this world, then the world's strategy is to shame you is to speak against you, is to try to shame you into submitting and succumbing to the way that they think and the way that they live. And that's happening in 1 Peter, and it's happening here. But we cannot be conformed to the world's pattern of thinking, and he said last week, we're not gonna be conformed to their pattern of shaming, their strategy of shaming, their reviling, the way that they try to play this dodgeball of getting even. You throw it at me, I'm throwing it right back at you. Peter says we don't do that. 
Even if we're reviled and shamed, we're not playing that game. We're going to bless in return. Why? Peter shows us the certainty of blessing. Look, for example, again at verse 13 where he says it so clearly. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You need to feel here the certainty, he says, of blessing. Now, where does Peter get this idea that even if you're persecuted, even if you suffer, you're blessed? Is he just pulling that word out of thin air? Well, he's already told us that we are citizens of heaven. He's already told us that God is our Father, Jesus is our Savior and Shepherd. We have a living hope because he's risen from the dead. He's already just told us from Psalm 34 that his eyes are upon us, his ears are open to us, he is our forever Father. We already know and feel by this point in the letter that we're blessed to be the children of God. But I think he has something even more specific in mind than all of those blessings that we already have, being the children of God. He's taking this from Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Same phrase that Peter used. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, here it is. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Peter's talking about being slandered. They're speaking falsely about you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, in the family of God, this is a constant experience. To be part of the lineage of the children of heaven whose kingdom is heaven, who belong to God, citizens of heaven, this is going to be the common narrative Christians face. Whenever we don't fit according to the way that the world thinks and according to the way that the world lives, it's always the same, shaming, slandering strategies. And Jesus says, rejoice. It means you're a child of the king. Remember Jesus said, do you expect to be treated better than me? Do you expect that if the head of the house is called Piesobol, is said to have a demon, if, if he was perfect and treated that way, do we expect to be treated better? He said, no, you will be treated the same way. I want to return to this point at the end because I think it's so easy for us to have our focus, if there's a fear of man, to have our focus on the, the frown of man and lose sight of the smile of God. 
which Jesus is saying, that's your blessing. To know you can't lose your father's smile forever. So how do we respond to this suffering? It comes now to the main point. Look at verses 14 to 16. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So in this we have the main point. I want to first look at his, his structure of thought and then his source of his thinking. Where is he getting this? The structure of his thought is very clear. It's this classic negative positive. Don't do this, that is, don't fear them. Rather, do this. The antidote, in other words, to fearing is honoring Christ as holy. So he's saying, don't do this, don't be afraid. Rather, do this. Honor Christ in your hearts as holy and be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in him. Now, question, where does Peter get this? Well, you can guess once again, Isaiah has something to say about it. Actually, when I was reading this text, I thought, I've heard this somewhere before, and I was actually wearing the shirt that Matthew Westerholm made for me. I bet Isaiah has something to say about it. It's like it was written all over my shirt. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. And here it is. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So this is Isaiah chapter 8. The context is Isaiah the prophet speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah, saying don't be afraid of this threat of alliance as Israel together with Syria conspire against you. He's saying don't be afraid of that. They're afraid that Assyria is going to come and wipe them out. They're afraid of some greater power than them. That's why they're in an alliance together against Assyria, and they're coming against you. He says, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of what they fear. That is, they fear being weak, and there's something greater that's coming against them. Why wouldn't you be afraid of that? Rather, Isaiah makes the point, the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. That is, if the Lord of hosts is with us, then who can be against us? Why would we be afraid? And so you see his point is, fearing them is wrong because God is supposed to be the one that you fear above all fears. Your greatest dread. Honoring him as above everything else. Now, did you see what Peter did here that's so magnificent? 
Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, and Peter modifies the quote. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So who's the Lord of hosts? Peter says, it's Jesus. He is the Lord of hosts. You are to honor him as holy. He is, in other words, God. He is very God of very God. You are to honor him. He is the one that's in a class by himself. He is the one that is the holy one. And this is exactly what Peter has been saying throughout 1 Peter, that he is to be their fear. Chapter 1, verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your exile here. Or even when you're called to honor everyone, including the emperor, you only fear the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 17. But now he shows us that reverent fear of the Lord Jesus is a right recognition of his holiness. Let's understand, given the backdrop of Isaiah, what Peter wants us to see. Isaiah, in chapter 8, verse 10, says this. In response to this conspiracy of an alliance, he says this. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. It doesn't matter what they plan. It doesn't matter what they say. It's going to come to a sum total of zero because God is with us. And if God is with us, we don't need to be afraid of what you fear because you don't have God. Of course, if you don't have him, you're going to be afraid of everything else. If you're only afraid of him, you're going to be afraid of nothing else because he's greater than everything else. Now, why would he say, if the Lord of hosts is with us, therefore we're not afraid? It must say something about who the Lord is. You wouldn't say, would you, if I have my youngest son with me, therefore I don't need to be afraid of anything. If something comes up, he's not going to do much good against it. You have to say, if the Lord is with us, there must be something about the Lord. And in the context of Isaiah, oh, he said it. He said the nations are like a drop in the bucket compared to him. They're like dust on the scales. They're like the inhabitants of the earth. They're like grasshoppers compared to him who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand, who weighs the mountains on a scale like we pick up a bunch of bananas and weigh them. He's saying, if he's with you, then you don't need to be afraid of anything else. But lest you think that Peter's just playing fast and loose here with Isaiah? Oh, Jesus is God, and so Jesus can be the one that Isaiah is referring to as the Lord of hosts. No, no, no. He's a much better reader than that. He's not forcing Jesus into this context. Do you remember the promise in Isaiah 8, verse 10? The Lord is with us. That's the Emmanuel promise of Isaiah 7, which says a virgin's going to give birth, and you're to name him Emmanuel. The Lord is with us. Isaiah chapter 9, that son is going to be given, he's going to be born, and he's going to be everlasting God, mighty Father, and 
everlasting God, the mighty Father, the Prince of Peace, and the government's going to be upon his shoulders. So he's saying, don't be afraid. The Lord is going to come, not just in power, but so personally that it will be visibly, really and truly coming into history, the Lord will really come to his people. And Peter's saying, that's happened. Even if God's people in the past couldn't see God, but knew that he was there, he hadn't had them speak to them, Peter's saying this promise is even more true for us because we're on the other side of it. The Lord has really come. He's really taken flesh. He's with us. And if you say to the rest of the world with your fear, you're saying, I don't really believe that he's come. I don't really believe that he's here. I don't really believe his promise that he has all power in heaven and earth. I really don't believe his promise that he's with me always. That would not be honoring Christ in your hearts as holy. That would be treating him in your hearts as a liar. I hear what you say. I don't really believe it. Honor him in your hearts as holy. What that means is that if Jesus is the sovereign Lord, then he's sovereign over so-called stray bullets. He's sovereign over spittle that comes from somebody's mouth. It's infected with COVID-19. He's sovereign in North Minneapolis. He's sovereign in Phillips. He's sovereign over everything that is happening to us. And what that means when Peter says, be ready, have your hearts, the example I gave in the introduction for some of you who weren't here for the welcome, it's like on the Krispy Kreme stores when it has a sign that says, hot now, Peter's saying, have that state of your heart so cultivated and ready that Jesus is hot now, holy in your hearts, ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Can I just show you why that is so incredibly powerful, especially in our day? When people are starved for hope, when we're discovering that just like the body needs help, the soul needs hope, put your ear to the ground for a little while in our world, what do you hear? What I hear everywhere is a plague of uncertainty. Don't you? Don't you feel that? What's school gonna be like? What's the economy gonna be like? What's the health crisis gonna be like? What's the election gonna be like? What's anything going to be like? 
Nobody can really know exactly how it's going to look, and so there's this plague of uncertainty, and in the midst of all of it, Christians come along and say, I'll tell you what's certain. I'll tell you what you can't lose. I'll tell you about a future that is absolutely certain because it's based on Jesus, my living hope, raised from the dead, defeating the grave, with me always. I know whose I am. I know where I'm going. I may not be able to spell out everything that's going to happen, but I know he's going to be with me and carry me through it all, and therefore what people will hear is hope and it will be visible, and people will ask, why can you respond this way? Why aren't you joining the general chorus of murmuring all around us? It seems like you've got something different. Yes, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the one who defeated the grave. Let me tell you about the one who delivered me from the dominion of darkness, transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let me tell you about this future that he has for us that cannot be thwarted. In a plague of uncertainty, Christians alone have hope. What you hear from people all around you is all these counterfeit hopes that they turn to when they feel like they've lost all sense of control. And what Christians say is you can't lose something you never had. You just had the illusion of control. And now that that's gone, you turn to all these counterfeit hopes that are really just patches of thin ice. They can't stand the weight that you put on them. Only Jesus, here as we stand on the solid rock, is a fixed hope, a kingdom that cannot be shaken a future hope that even defeats the grave. That's what makes Christians different. In a word, what we have that Peter puts his finger on here that's different than marketplace evangelism that only wants to focus on the positive and the successful is a holy fear. A holy fear. When Isaiah 8.13 says, let him be your fear, let him be your dread, he doesn't say, Peter doesn't say, don't be afraid of them, rather fear the Lord. Why would you fear the Lord? He goes a step up because the Lord alone is holy. In his very essence, not talking just about his moral purity, in his very essence, he is greater than anything else, anyone else. And this, dear friends, has been the experience of God's people in every age. What do you think happened when Isaiah was told in Isaiah chapter 6, you're going to go to this people and they're not going to want to hear a word of it. They're going to reject it. They're going to hate it. They're not going to receive it because all you're going to be doing is preaching judgment and the hope of salvation. People have never wanted to hear about judgment. So here he's given this commission to speak to people who do not want to hear a word of it. What happens right before that? So he doesn't fear them? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. What happens in Revelation 1 through 3, where it says Satan is throwing some of you into prison, some of you are dying, having to be a faithful witness. In Revelation 4, come up here and I'll show you the way things really are. And God is on his throne. And Christ is exalted as the Redeemer. In the book of Nehemiah, when their exiles returning and the people of the land are all mocking them, trying to frighten them, what does Nehemiah say? Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, the great and awesome. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, The church multiplied as it walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, what have we lost? That the church in this day would not be multiplying and walking in power. It's because we're compromised by the fear of man. We have lost the fear of the Lord. We are so wanting to be regarded as hip and smart and cool and likable and tolerant that at the end of the day, we care more about defending our honor and our approval than defending his honor and showing that he is Lord and judgment is coming and they better be ready. But to be ready for us to share with them, we better be ready that we're gonna be looked at as not hip, not cool, not tolerant, not smart, but it is humble to say I know him whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him. The Lord must be our fear. In that moment, rather than me worrying more about their approval of me, I'm going to have all of my heart fixed on the Lord, ready to share who he is, and caring more about their eternal loss in hell than any temporary loss that I might get by being looked upon as a fanatic. And Peter says, you are to share this hope with gentleness, with respect, and a good conscience. Why? Gentleness is this word, not weakness, it's this word that the New Testament uses, that the, the Greek term was for domesticated animals that were very strong, a horse, whose great strength was brought under control by the master. So the master could say, do this, he'd go there. Master say, go here, goes there. He's saying, don't be so panicked and fearful when you're with them that you're like out of control. You're a loose cannon, you're a wild animal. Rather, your heart is steadied by the Lord. You're under his control. And this respect is the same word for fear. Only God is to be revered and feared. So you've got this attitude towards others and this reverence towards Christ. 
so that you're under his control, able to share about the hope that you have in him because you belong to him. And why do you have to do that with a good conscience? It's hard to be eager to tell others about the hope that you have if you're living a life that contradicts that. If you have a compromised conscience, that you say this is what makes you different when really you live just like everybody else. You have to have a good conscience before God that this is really true, that you really believe his promises, that you're really walking with him, that you, your heart is hot now, not this is a, let me tell you about a Jesus I used to read about or know about in Sunday school. Let me talk to you about the Jesus I just talked to this morning. Hot now. So in conclusion, we're gonna sing a song, Jesus, I my cross have taken. It talks about all the things that we're gonna face. Storms may howl, clouds may gather, mockery may come. What is it that holds us, that enables us to stay faithful, stay ready to share our hope no matter what comes? Think what spirit dwells within you. Think what Father's smile is yours. Think what Jesus died to win the child of heaven. Can you not repine there? Can you not believe all must work good for me? The only way that you are going to stay faithful in the fear of the Lord, which should be the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of evangelism and the beginning of worship, is to say, I will not fear the frowns or smiles of others if I first live to the smile of my heavenly Father. If I live to his smile alone, I can die to the smiles and frowns of others which means we don't have to retreat in fear from others. We don't have to attack others. Faith does not close doors to relationships with others out of fear or out of hate. Rather, faith opens the door that says, God, whenever that door is ready to be opened, I'm ready to speak about the hope that is in my heart. Let's pray. Father, we're asking for such a readiness of heart that can only come from a right recognition of who you are, all that you've promised, your presence with us, all power that you have, oh God, Help our hearts to always be ready, no matter what comes, because we know of a smile that we can't lose. We have a joy of salvation that nobody can take away. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. 
For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.